0: Welcome to GovCon Live. This is the second episode in our series focused on legal challenges construction contractors face in the federal procurement space. In this episode, Palero Mazza's Lauren Breyer and Sam Finerty, attorneys in the firm's Government Contracts Group, cover best practices you should implement now to increase your chances of recovering costs resulting from the impacts of COVID-19. Before we join the discussion, we have some business to handle. This podcast is for informational purposes only we are not rendering legal advice. Your unique facts and circumstances could change the advice that would apply, and the rapidly changing nature of the law may cause the information in this podcast to become outdated. Let's get started.
1: Good afternoon and welcome. We are going to be discussing preparing for and managing claims in the COVID-19 project environment. I am Sam Finerty, and I'm joined by my colleague, Lauren Breyer. We are both associates in Clara Mazza's Government Contracts Practice Group. I specialize in representing contractors in a lot of construction-related claims and appeals, REAs. We do a lot of size and status protests before the Government Accountability Office and before SBA and its Office of Hearings and Appeals. I also deal particularly with a lot of past performance questions, TPARS issues facility clearance issues, and I assist a lot of contractors with just general FAR and SBA regulation compliance, as well as sort of navigating their time in various small business programs and maximizing that time. I also handle a lot of questions related to recertification. And my colleague, Lauren, is one of the co-chairs of our Claims and Appeals practice group, and she handles a lot of the firm's Claims and Appeals. A lot of REAs as well. She also deals with a lot of bid protests, status protests. And additionally, she deals with a lot of security issues. So jumping ahead, I'll tell you a little bit about the firm. Clara Maza is a business law firm. We represent clients across the country, both government contractors and commercial businesses. As I related to in our introductions there, we handle a lot of government contract matters. We've got you know, pretty much experience, any sort of issue arising out of government contracting. We also have a robust litigation group, as well as a corporate and labor employment team, which sort of allows us to become a one stop shop for entities that are working with the federal government, as well as commercial entities. Given our our size and, you know, the scope of projects we work on, we sort of become the in-house counsel to a lot of our clients that might not necessarily have their own in-house counsel. And, you know, we really assist specifically in the government contracts realm. We assist contractors with issues that arise, negotiating contracts, preparing proposals on the upfront part of the procurement process, dealing with issues and solicitations, questions they might have or things they might want to address before they submit a proposal, And then we also assist with contract formation and any sort of claims or dispute issues that arise post-award. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about our overview of the issues we're going to touch on today. The purpose of this presentation is, you know, certainly the last 18 months or so have been unlike anything the world has ever experienced as far as the impacts caused by COVID 19. This has had, you know, devastating impacts for businesses. And particularly there have been a lot of impacts to government contractors, particularly in the construction industry, which is our focus today. So we're going to discuss, you know, some of those issues and how COVID-19 has affected construction contractors specifically. We're then going to talk about how you might be able to recover when you're experiencing delays and costs that are tied to COVID-19. Then just based on some of our experiences over the last year and a half or so, we're going to, you know, weigh in on how we have seen The government and various agencies responding to different claims and REAs that contractors have submitted related to COVID 19 and where we see things going in the future and what strategies we've seen play out to contractors' success recently. We're also going to discuss some government defenses that can arise when pursuing these types of claims and REAs. And at the end, we are going to talk about, which has been a really hot topic in recent weeks, President Biden's executive orders implementing vaccine mandates for contractors and, you know, how that's sort of changed the landscape and some of the questions and issues that have arisen as a result of some of those sweeping legislative reforms. Really, the, some of the big COVID-19 related issues that have affected construction contractors, these probably don't come as a surprise to anyone listening in the audience right now. But, you know, certainly there has been rampant inflation recently. There have been a lot of price escalations caused, you know, in part by a lot of the supply chain issues and material shortages that contractors and suppliers and just the world is experiencing right now. Certainly lumber got a lot of early press in the early goings of COVID, but it has really trickled down to not only raw materials like that, but labor availability of personnel. There has also been, you know, this has led to dramatic increases for subcontractor and supplier quotes, both pre-award and post-award. So it's created a lot of administrative hurdles when you're trying to administer a prime contract and deal with these almost daily changes to availability of supplies and price impacts. But there's also been a lot of labor shortages, and these new vaccine mandates are creating their own concerns, and also they are causing a lot of questions, leading contractors to wonder whether they might be able to pursue a claim for some of the excess costs. Created by complying with these new vaccine mandates. There are also a lot of delays due to changes in on-site construction and safety practices that are new safety practices that are required as part of this new COVID-19 environment that we're all living through, as well as CPE costs, which are now you know, something that needs to be you know, widely considered in, in pretty much every industry and projects that contractors are working on. The first discrete topic we're going to talk about is price escalation. This has been going on for quite some time. Back in 2018, President Trump signed a trade expansion act that imposed a 25% tariff on imported steel, as well as a 10% tariff on imported aluminum. That has led to, you know, I think it was between April or so of 2020 and August of 2021, there was about 111% increase in the cost of steel. The price escalation has been caused by a number of the disruptions the labor force that I just touched upon, and the impacts on the supply chain, uncertainty about material availability. There's longer lead times now to manufacturing, producing things, getting the materials on site. You know, mobilizing on site things you need to get. It's just taking a lot longer now to get those things to the site, and that's all you know having a, a rippling effect on administering construction contracts. There's also you know hoarding, which we've all seen from you know, retail to consumers across the board, that is also having an impact on the availability of materials. So the important thing to keep in mind with these price escalation concerns is that if you've got a cost reimbursement contract, you might be able to pass on some of these escalation costs to the government. But unfortunately, if you're in a fixed price contract scenario, that requires the contractor and not the government to assume the risk of these increased costs, unless there is perhaps a a provision in the contract that is going to shift risk. To the other party. So that is just something to to keep in mind because certainly the type of contract you have is going to, you know, sort of dictate your ability to pursue reimbursements for some of these costs that are, you know, now getting sort of unpredictable and, and really can, you know, change the dynamic of what you thought was going to be a profitable contract. And now if you're in a fixed price world and you've got to bear the cost or the risk rather, there's going to be cost overruns. You know, it might not end up being such a profitable contract or perhaps you might end up having to perform at a loss. So important to keep that in mind as you're just navigating this industry and, and thinking about the various incentives at play as you pursue different contract opportunities. So jumping ahead here on some of the strategies that you might be able to implement to combat the impacts of price escalation. You know, on the on the pre-award front, one of the things you you might want to do and and should do really is monitor how things are being priced carefully during the bidding phase to make sure that you're you know accounting for changes in price and what you expect the actual cost of end of the day for you know various portions of the work that you're bidding on to be. You might want to negotiate the extent you can a price escalation clause into the contract, which would allow you to perhaps pursue a claim to the extent there is an increase in cost or not necessarily a price escalation clause, but you might be able to negotiate some sort of another contingency that would that would allow you to cover these price escalations. So you might want to think about this both at the prime contract level and at the subcontract level. Certainly, if you're a subcontractor, you might be a little bit limited in what you're able to negotiate to the extent the prime doesn't also have those types of advantageous clauses in its prime contract. but To the extent they do have those types of causes, you're gonna wanna make sure that you're, you know, to the extent possible, getting the benefit of a similar provision that's gonna allow you as a subcontractor to account for these contingencies as well. So with that in mind, you know, certainly one of the important things to do always, but especially now, is to review subcontracts and make sure that you're you're flagging whether or not these are terms that are going to be included. Just to make sure that you're doing your best on the on the front end to, you know, set yourself up for success to the extent you got to try to pursue a claim for somebody's cost. We're talking about a post-award situation. You're perhaps now going back and reviewing some of your contracts or you're being awarded contracts and you're trying to, you know, understand the, the legal landscape you find yourself in, review cost the contract, see if it does have any of those price escalation clauses. It could have a change in law clause, which we will touch upon later on what that sort of entails. There could also be some tax clauses that would provide for equitable adjustment. The other thing you might want to consider doing post-award to sort of defray or manage price escalation is either accelerating or deferring purchases of materials that are going to be subject to escalation to perhaps a period in time where the burden of the cost might be not as significant. Or if you can defer purchase to a period in time where you think the cost is going to come down, at the same time, if you think a cost right now is as low as it's going to be over the next. You know, six, nine months, you might want to accelerate, purchase those materials now, lock them in at a lower cost to yourself. That way, six, eight months from now, when you anticipate that the price is going to go up a lot, you've you know, at least done as much as you can to insulate yourself from the impacts of that. Similarly, there, another strategy you could pursue is purchasing supplies early and then storing them on site if that's necessary. Just keep in mind that a lot of contracts provide, you're only going to be paid for materials stored on site. So therefore, this just might be something that you need to walk through with the agency. You might have to store materials on-site and to the extent you like to store them off-site, if it's advantageous to you to pre-purchase supplies, you just might need to get the agency's approval to store things off-site. The other thing you could try doing, and this might not be possible in all circumstances, but you could try to qualify your bid. In other words, say that it's sort of contingent based on availability and cost of certain materials. That way you're insulating yourself to the extent After you submit your bid, there's some crazy price hike or, you know, material that you assumed you'd have availability to are no longer available. That can provide you, you know, way out of the contract if it just proves impossible to perform based on those types of changes to the environment. And then another thing you could do is get confirmation that any subcontractors or suppliers that you're working for are going to be able to comply with whatever the supply obligations they have in their agreements with you just to make sure that everyone's on the same page that uh, you know, what they're committing to is actually something that they, they reasonably think they're going to be able to commit to. The price escalation clause, just for reference, is R52.216-4. And under that clause, you have to provide notice of these escalations in price within a certain amount of time. It's 60 days. So just keep that in mind. You are navigating and dealing with various price escalations if you've got a contract that allows you to use this clause. It covers, again, both the increases in labor and unit prices for materials. And often, whether it be the FAR clause or other just general price escalation clauses in commercial contracts or subcontracts, they're often going to be tied to some sort of published economic price index or, or, or scheduled prices. And it's going to require for you to be able to utilize this clause to your advantage to claim an increase in cost. It's going to require that there's a price increase usually that's above Some sort of specified percentage. So just keep that in mind. And now my colleague is going to talk about how you might be able to recover for some of these increased costs and delays.
2: Thanks, Sam. And basically, what Sam is discussing and what we're going to transition to is other avenues of recovery of delays and costs that are tied to COVID 19. So ultimately, when a client comes to us, we want to. Basically, look at the contract terms and the factual specific circumstances that are surrounding their performance to see whether the likelihood of success is high as far as attempts at recovery. From what we have seen, as far as COVID-19 related delays and costs, contractors have generally been able to recover time extensions for delays that are caused directly by COVID-19 that impact the critical path. For example, when contractors are dealing with site closures or site restrictions for COVID-19-related safety purposes, we have been able to successfully negotiate extensions of time so that they can reliably complete the project without incurring any liquidated damages assessments. On the other hand, we have faced some pushback from the government, and this is across various agencies, in our ability to recover monetary damages that are arising from COVID-19. We have been exercising a number of different legal theories that I'll get into a little bit later, but it's very dependent on the circumstances in the contracting officer that you're dealing with as far as negotiation goes so that we can put you guys in the best position possible for recovery. But again, it is very fact-specific and very dependent on who you're dealing with at the government and their willingness to discuss and negotiate costs. So one of the big things that we look at and that we often bring to the contracting officer's attention when negotiating costs and time associated with COVID-19 is the OMB and DOD memoranda that was issued very close to the spark of COVID-19. So the DOD memo that was issued, it particularly notes that contracting officers are trusted and empowered to make the difficult decisions on appropriate adjustments to each contract. We often highlight this language either in a request for equitable adjustment or a certified claim. I'm basically showing the contracting officer that this is a, a hard decision, but basically COVID-19 is outside of the contractor's control and it's by no fault of their own. Therefore, they should be more willing to, you know, be flexible as far as extending the performance period and being open to the negotiation of increasing costs. We also often point contracting officers to the OMB memo that was issued um, the titled Managing Federal Contract Performance Issues Associated with the Novel Coronavirus. This guidance states that agencies should be flexible in providing extensions to performance dates of telework or other flexible work solutions, such as virtual work environments are not possible, or if a contractor is unable to perform in a timely manner due to quarantining, social distancing, or other COVID-19-related interruptions. Again, we often use this language in a form of negotiation, basically demonstrating to the contracting officer that the agencies are pushing you know, for flexibility here and a willingness to negotiate time and costs associated with the unanticipated nature of COVID-19. Again, it demonstrates an openness and understanding for the need for negotiation and when we do point it out to the contracting officers in our Request for Actual Adjustment and Certified Claims, we believe it's resulted in a more open dialogue. So these are both memos to keep in mind as you, know, you open a dialogue with your related contracting officer as you begin or continue to face COVID-19 related issues. So it's important to highlight the force majeure clauses that may be included or are likely included in your federal contract. Most federal contracts lack a more standard force majeure clause that is often included in private contracts, but the closest to your standard force ma- majeure clause is the excusable delay clause that's found in most federal contracts. The most frequently used excusable delay clause is FAR 52.249-14, which states that the contractor shall not be in default because of any failure to perform that arises from causes beyond the control and without fault or negligence of the contractor and this covers acts of the government neither its sovereign or contractual capacity epidemics and quarantine restriction. again this language ties directly to covid-19 so we have requested equitable adjustments and time adjustments under this clause for delays or costs caused by covid-19 again this has been more successful in instances where we're requesting an extension of the performance period but for requesting compensable delays under this clause it's been more of a challenge Again, we're still, with a lot of clients, actively negotiating compensable delays tied to this clause, but we have yet to see full resolution of recovery of costs. For fixed-price construction contracts, uh, most contracts contain FAR 52.249-10. This is an extremely important clause to be aware of if it is in your contract, and that's because this clause does contain a very tight notice requirement of 10 days which means even more reason to make sure that you review your contract um, for these excusable delay clauses and notice requirements. Because if you do fall outside this window, it could be problematic as you begin to negotiate time and cost tied to COVID-19. We commonly recommend to our clients, if they do have this notice requirement, that they actually contact their contracting officer on a weekly basis if they are continually incurring COVID-19 related delays or costs just to ensure that you're within this window under the FAR 52.249-10 clause. For fixed price, supply, and service contracts, the most commonly used excusable delay clause is FAR 52.249-8. This also lists epidemics and quarantine restrictions as excusable delays, so plausibly covers time and cost impacts tied to COVID-19. Like I said before, the basic remedy amounts to extending the contract completion deadline so that your team can avoid termination. But we have used and attempted to use these clauses to claim compensable delays where clients have incurred related costs. Again, we haven't received a definitive no from a contracting officer in our attempt to recover compensable delays. So the recovery may be there. We just haven't seen full resolution to that point yet. So another avenue for attempting to recover costs tied to COVID-19 impact is under the Stop Work Suspension of Work Clause. So that's FAR 52.242-14. Again, you want to take a look to see if your contract has that clause incorporated in it, which if it's a construction contract, is highly likely. So this is implemented as it relates to COVID-19 if the government issues a stop work order. for, For instance, a COVID-19-related site closure. The contractor could possibly seek an adjustment as for time and costs tied to that type of stop work or suspension of work order. Common examples of a constructive suspension would include the government's failure to timely approve specifications or submittal or limiting personnel.
1: I can jump in for you here, Lauren. Yeah, so as Lauren was saying, being able to recover money damages for COVID-19 delays, there's a couple of different legal theories. These are the, some of the different causes that are being you know, used most commonly. The first one is the standard suspension of work clause, which provides that if the government issues a soft work order or suspension, the contractor can seek adjustment for increased costs. So, you know, in, in this context, if the government's issuing a soft work order as a result of COVID-19, then that would be a natural sort of clause to rely upon and the remedies provided therein to pursue and a possible adjustment for cause. The two clauses listed below here are just the standard changes clauses that may be in your contract. So just important to keep in mind that when you're contemplating pursuing a potential claim, just review your contract to see which clauses you might have in your contract that you could rely upon. Changes for there to be an actual change in the contract, there has to be direction, instruction, interpretation, or determination from someone at the agency who has the ability to find the government and they're actually, you know, creating a change to the contract scope of work perhaps and then you are relying on that direction and as a result you're incurring excess costs to comply with this change scope of work this is also a clause that can be used when a contractor is experiencing a constructive suspension of work which is a scenario where the government hasn't formally issued a stop work order or suspended the work under the bar clause mentioned above here but as a result of its actions or some delay of then this is being used in the context of COVID-19. You've essentially been suspended in effect. And so you can use the changes clause to argue that there's, you know, there's been a change. You've been constructively suspended here. Again, you have to generally assert these types of claims within 30 days of the change. So just keep that in mind with REAs and claims in general. There are a lot of notice provisions that can be important. So as we're going to touch on a little later, it's just important to be documenting things, particularly now in this changing environment to make sure that you're keeping the government as up-to-date as possible as you can on as it relates to how things are happening on site in the wake of COVID-19. So, I think Lauren is back and going to take over.
2: Yes. So, one of the ways the contractor can also seek recovery is under a changes in law theory. So, we are bringing your attention to a case that was before the Federal Circuit in 1992. And this is highly relevant to the vaccine mandates that we're going to talk about later. And so it's relevant here. It's also relevant there. So we did want to bring it to your attention. And it's the Peel of Pills Materials Company. And in that case, the contractor sought cost of complying with the revised OSHA regulations, which, again, are highly relevant to the vaccine mandates recently issued by the Biden administration. And there, the contract contained a FAR 52.236-7 and FAR 52.236-13. Which required that the contractor comply with applicable law and standards issued by the Secretary of Labor. The Federal Circuit moved on the side of the contractor, supporting the argument that the use of the word issued limited the contractor's general obligation to the specific OSHA regulations in effect at the time goods were submitted and could be entitled to additional compensation again. This case may be highly useful in defense for the recovery of costs tied to the new vaccine mandates and OSHA requirements, which we will touch upon later on, but it is something to be on notice of if you are beginning to incur costs tied to the the new vaccine mandates. So we do have some best practices that we commonly recommend to our clients as they begin to and continue to experience cost impacts that are tied to COVID-19. One of the big things that we recommend is that They make sure that they provide detailed information and narratives from all relevant parties in the supply chain that demonstrate the unanticipated cost and the impact of the pandemic. So an example of that is if we're filing a request for equitable adjustment or certified claim, we most commonly ask our contractors, the prime contractors, to request narratives or letters from every subcontractor within their supply chain and see whether they can provide a, a personal narrative basically to support their request for equitable adjustment or claim and present it to the CEO so they have a better understanding of how the supply chain is being impacted or you know, how material costs have increased and how it, that basically has impacted the entire flow of performance. We have found those letters to be very beneficial in negotiations. So we do recommend that that information is collected and provided as you negotiate any time or cost impact to your contract. Another thing is, if possible, demonstrate that you try to find a lower cost. So say, you know you get an initial quote from a subcontractor, suddenly all costs have driven up dramatically. just showing you know the one quote from the subcontractor you initially contacted may not be enough. Sometimes it's helpful to show, you know, well, hey at every level here we've we've contacted five different subcontractors all of their costs have risen significantly at least all across the board 20% that way you're showing the contracting officer that you've made an effort to reach out to you know various subs and you're you're dealing with the same issue across the board it just helps in negotiations and it helps the contracting officer better understand what you're dealing with another best practice that we recommend to our clients is that they provide detailed schedule impact information relevant to their performance period on a consistent basis. We don't recommend that you suddenly provide a schedule impact six months after dealing with COVID-19. It's something that should be consistent, especially in larger construction projects. Just keeping the contracting officer on notice of, you know, all the different activities that are being impacted and how they're being impacted. It's only going to make negotiations easier as you begin to encounter the close of performance. One of the other things is that if the material or labor cost increase has nothing to do with the government. So say, you know, the government has an issue to stop work order. All of a sudden, your, la- your lumber cost has increased 100% since that was issued. If it's just tied to a supply chain delay separate and apart from the government interference or a supplier labor shortage, again, that's not tied directly to a government directive. We can't necessarily say that there was you know, a constructive change or a directed change from the government since they really are not directly interfering with your performance. But we may be able to recover those types of costs under an escalation clause or maybe even a commercial impracticability theory, basically saying that, you know, when we first were awarded this contract, we quoted at you know, this amount since we were awarded the contract due to supply chain shortages outside of our control. Or you know, material shortages outside of our control. All of a sudden, this contract is just impossible to perform. We can't afford to do it. So, the commercial and practicability arguments are available, and you know, there's other ways of bringing this to the contracting officer's attention and pushing for negotiations, even if the increase in cost is not tied directly to a government directive or interference. I'm going to pass the baton back to Sam.
1: Thanks, Lauren. Yeah, as Lauren just. Mentioning, you know, another possible theory of relief here is commercial impractability. This is a situation where, you know, it excuses the party from performing unless that party has assumed rather the risk of the event. As Lauren was sort of noting, it can also be treated as a type of constructive change to a contractor. Essentially what you've got to prove if you're going to pursue this type of strategy is that you've essentially entitled to recover costs because the contractor due to some sort of unanticipated outcome or event, rather, is unable to perform the contract, essentially become impracticable, You know, sort of akin to impossibility in a sense. But it, it really has to do with the commercial impracticability of the contract. To prove this, though, you've got to show more than, than just that the cost to become more expensive than you originally contemplated. As sort of a note here, while this is certainly a strategy and a theory that you may be able to pursue given the fact and circumstances that you're dealing with. These types of claims do have a pretty low success rate before the Boards of Contract Appeals and Court of Federal Claims, but it's possible that if the contractor can demonstrate that they have a significant cost overrun stemming from COVID-19 and it's just made you know, what they initially anticipated was going to be the financial incentive structure of the contract. If it's just made it completely impractical now to perform. You might want to consider including this type of commercial impracticability argument as sort of a follow-on to another argument that you're including in an R.E.A. or a claim. It it could be, you know, a good alternative theory of relief for you if the circumstances warrant this type of argument. So another thing to keep in mind is there is a law, a VA statute here, 85-804, again on 2020. It essentially allows the VA to indemnify. COVID-19 contractors. So this is sort of another way that you might be able to tackle some of the impacts of COVID-19. The law provides for contractors to get compensation or other forms of relief where the government doesn't have a legal obligation and where relief may otherwise be prohibited by law. Consideration for the request for relief is going to be made by a contract adjustment board appointed by the head of the agency you're dealing with. And this statute is really intended for situations where there's no other legal basis for relief. It allows the president's broad authority to provide relief in extraordinary circumstances that can override other statutes or common law, so long as doing so facilitates the national defense. That's kind of the hook here. So it might not always apply, but it, it could be extrapolated to apply to a COVID-19 scenario. You've usually got to exhaust any administrative remedy that you had available. So that would include, you know, filing a claim, pursuing normal avenues of relief. And then if those prove to be unsuccessful, this would be sort of a way you could still try to pursue extraordinary contractual relief. It's certainly plausible that a contract adjustment board would offer relief to contractors if their other attempts for recovery under the changes clauses and the disputes clauses in the contract are unsuccessful. So just keep this in mind as something that's floating out there that could be applied. And it seems like it could sort of match some of the the circumstances that are being created by COVID-19. So, you know, we've been now doing this for a year and a half or so as far as submitting claims and REAs and dealing with contractors that have been impacted by COVID and are trying to pursue both time extension and in certain cases trying to get costs reimbursed for exit costs they're incurring as a result of COVID-19. So we want to just touch upon, you know, sort of some of our takeaways from what we've been seeing as the agency response so far. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem like there's a very cohesive response from our agencies as it relates to the submission of RA's and claims. They certainly, however, are seeming to be much more receptive to requests for time extension as a result of delays caused by COVID-19 than they are for requests for costs. Agencies that we've dealt with have considered requests for costs where there was a significant shift in performance practices and those were driven by some of the new guidelines by the CDC that have been issued over the last year and a half or so, or where there are highly contract-specific changes. So if you're really trying to pursue a claim for cost, it's important that you delineate and sort of detail what the impact on your project has been from other projects, perhaps on site. It's sort of proving to be the case that the hesitancy to grant costs is sort of related to agencies' belief that if they start broadly granting costs or COVID-19 impacts, that might open the floodgates to other contractors to recover costs, which could put the government exceeding their budget, certainly. But it could just really lead to a lot of additional claims for costs that perhaps aren't as warranted as very fact-specific claims might be. So there's definitely some hesitancy that we've seen from agencies to more broadly grant costs for COVID-19. It seems like they might be waiting for the boards and the courts to resolve issues first to see sort of what the precedent is here before they start broadly granting costs in these types of situations. There's certainly contractors that are pursuing these types of claims. So there there will be appeals and there, you know, there will be some guidance on this in, you know, the coming months or, or year, we imagine. It's really at this point for the boards and courts to resolve whether this sort of force majeure caused by COVID nineteen equates to just an excusable delay that's not compensable, or if more broadly speaking, this is you know a constructive change to the contract and you might be able to meet more broadly entitled claim for cost. So at this point, there is, you know, definitely, given that OMB and DOD guidance that Lauren touched on earlier, there is much more willingness on the parts of agencies to be granting time extensions here. That does not mean that it's not worth pursuing claims for costs because we certainly have and we have had some success doing it. But just bear in mind that there is apt to be a little more hesitancy from agencies in getting on board with some of the legal theories of relief since they are somewhat novel in this environment as to whether they apply to COVID-19 as well. And now Lauren's going to talk a little bit about the Sovereign Acts doctrine.
2: Right. So the sovereign act doctrine is actually something that we've been seeing more recently that's being raised as a defense by the federal government. So the doctrine has been long established, but it basically provides that the federal government, when acting as a contracting party, cannot be held liable for an obstruction to the performance of a contract resulting from its public and general acts as a sovereign. So, in its capacity as a sovereign, the government can impact a contractor's performance of the contract. And in such instances, the government is released from liability or risk for damages resulting from its acts. So, long as those acts are shown as public and general and not taken purely or specifically to avert contractual obligation. So, one instance where this is commonly used is after 9-11. And it was basically to prevent government payment that was related to various site and base closures that were tied to security concerns. So in terms of COVID-related claims and REAs in this defense tactic, the government may, and in some cases that we have dealt with directly, they've tried to invoke the doctrine as an affirmative defense to payment for compensable delays that are caused by suspensions of work that are tied to COVID-19. So as it relates to site access restrictions, the Federal Circuit has previously held that any governmental act that obstructs a government contract is more likely to be regarded as incidental and thus subject to the doctrine. So when the governmental act is broad enough to affect parties having no connection to the contract, i.e. the public, the courts and boards are more likely to decide on behalf of the government and find them not liable for any cost tied to that action. Again, agencies are starting to use the doctrine to avoid liability for costs stemming from COVID-19 that results directly from government directives. So this is self-work orders or changes to the contract. If the government is able in some fashion to show that it was a public protection, they're more likely to not be liable for cost. So in the example, the government mandates a type suspension that impacts your contract and there are costs tied to that suspension. The government is often open to granting time extensions that are related to COVID-19. But again, it's more recently trying to skirt liability for cost claiming. This doctrine as a defense, basically saying that the action was taken to protect the public in general and not taken to avoid your specific contractual obligation. So for a specific example, say you're working at a large base and the government issues a suspension of work but it does a blanket suspension. So you're not the only contractor that's dealing with the suspension of work. No other federal contractors are allowed on base due to a spread of you know, COVID-19. And you begin to incur costs. Other contractors that are also working on base begin to incur costs. What the government is likely to do, we're seeing them start to exercise the defense of the use of this doctrine, basically saying that you know, this was a public protection we issued the suspension of work broadly. It impacted all federal contractors. It, it was initiated to protect the public generally. Therefore, you know, it wasn't a specific contract impact and we should not be liable. Again, contractors need to be weary of this defense and make sure that they employ sufficient protocols in response to COVID directives such as these so they are prepared to present a viable claim. So, one of the ways to think about this is. How can we differentiate um, this action taken by the government from the other contractors? So a better example would be if you know, we're working on base and they limited only electrical contractors from coming on site or if only you were prevented from coming on site. Other federal contractors are actually allowed. That shows more of a specific interference with your performance and less of a public action taken by the government. So there's, you know, facts and circumstances like that where we're able to delineate your contract and your activity from the rest of the federal contractors that are working on the same site. We're in a better position to say that the sovereign acts defense is not applicable. So, again, you know, as you're dealing with these issues and government directives, it's really important to like, ask around and understand, you know, who else is getting impacted by these directives and how they're getting impacted by the directives. So it may be possible to differentiate, you know, your performance from another contractor to demonstrate that this wasn't actually a public action. It really wasn't done to protect the public good. It was more so an interference specifically to your contractual obligations under the contract. So in general, what protocols should be implemented to support COVID REAs and claims? Again, these are more so recommendations that we often tell our clients when they come to us to assist in COVID REAs and claims. And sometimes it's it's a little late where our clients haven't done sufficient record keeping. So it's really important that you take these practices to heart and you implement them immediately. But basically, the first big thing is implementing appropriate record keeping at the time of bid through the full end of the performance period. So What does that mean? It means we think it's important to track labor patterns and potential shortages. I mean, I have clients coming to me where, you know, they start with 20 guys on site and it fluctuates throughout performance and it significantly impacts time and cost. If we're tracking those labor patterns throughout, we can more appropriately track how that's impacted the critical path and the schedule. And we're also able to better track, you know, actual costs that were incurred. And we're better able to explain the issues to the contracting officer if we've been recording this from start to finish. Another thing we want to record is any shifts in safety protocols and the impact it's had on on-site construction practices. For instance, you know, we've had clients that had a limit due to the 6 feet guidance. You know, they had to limit personnel in certain areas. So instead of having six painters, they could only have two painters on site. Again, this has a significant impact on their ability to perform in a timely manner. Sometimes those guidances fall away. Sometimes they are significantly increased as far as what protocols need to be implemented. So it's really important that you're keeping track of how those safety protocols are impacting your performance from the beginning to the end. Another big thing is monitoring all correspondence with contracting personnel. You want to make sure that you keep those records somewhere safe. One other big thing is that you note that only the contracting officer is actual authority to make any changes to the contract. So when you are having you know, more serious conversations about any changes or directives, make sure that you're having those conversations with the contracting officer directly. The other thing is that you want to make sure that you notice the contracting officers weekly on cost and schedule impact, if that is indeed happening to you on a weekly basis. We also want to make sure that we're quantifying losses caused by COVID-19 accurately and in real time. If you find yourself you know, going back months at a time as to you know, how these costs actually impacted you, that's definitely not the best practice. It's really important that you're tracking prices and supply and material cost changes throughout the life of performance. Another thing to consider is negotiating COVID-19 language into your contract. If you feel like it may be valuable to add some language into your excusable delay clause, it's possible you know, to approach the contracting officer to see if you can negotiate that language into the contract or a modification. So that, again, is something to consider.
1: So we're coming up on our time here. For those of you who've been following the news, there's obviously been a lot of developments the last couple of months related to President Biden, various executive actions, related to COVID-19 and specifically the vaccine mandates that have been issued. On July 29, Biden introduced a vaccine mandate for on-site federal employees and contractors. It requires that employees and on-site contractors that are not fully vaccinated or unwilling to attest their vaccination status, those contractors and employees have to submit to weekly or biweekly COVID-19 tests. Those tests may be provided by the agency, but still kind of waiting on some details regarding how those tests are going to be administered. Individuals have to wear a mask, socially distance, and they're subject to the government-wide restrictions on official travel. requires that federal agencies conduct frequent health checks and symptom monitoring, among other things. Then in September, President Biden expanded upon that mandate and announced a rather sweeping update to his strategy to combat COVID-19, requiring that employers with 100-plus employees are required to ensure vaccination or weekly testing, and they must provide paid leave for employee vaccination also requires that federal employees get vaccinated. This removes the option to opt out for testing in place of vaccination. There are two executive orders that call for new guidance on implementation of the vaccine mandate, and agencies are going to be required to incorporate a upcoming FAR clause that obligates compliance and both new, renewed, and extended contracts with this vaccine mandate. A lot of agencies have already started doing this. The FAR Council has opened a case meaning that they are now tracking this clause, they've developed it, and at some point in the future, it will be officially enacted into the FAR. In the meantime, both civilian agencies and DOD have issued a memorandum basically saying that agencies need to start implementing this FAR clause effective immediately. DOD has at least done that. The Civilian Acquisition Council has issued a memo saying civilian agencies should start to issue their own class deviations to the FAR. Effectively making this FAR clause go into effect immediately. And GSA specifically is one of the agencies that has already started to implement this. So a lot of clients have come to us in the past couple of weeks and they are already noticing that contracting officers are modifying contracts to include this new FAR flow down that requires this vaccine mandate. It has to be flowed down as well to subcontractors in certain instances. So I think it's subcontracts above the simplified acquisition threshold. So just be mindful of that. A lot of those developments are leading to a lot of questions. Some of the missing pieces with the vaccine mandate and the sweeping changes coming out of the Biden administration are how employers are supposed to respond to employees requesting medical and religious accommodation from having to comply with the mandate. There's uncertainty as to how companies are subject to the testing alternative are expected to pay for employee testing. It's obviously an added cost. The hope is that there'll be increased free testing access. Questions also as to how employers are expected to collect vaccine and testing information and to verify the authenticity of vaccination cards and test results from contractors. And one of the big ticket items is it's unclear how those mandates can be enforced and how contractors might be able to recover costs and time associated with their compliance with this new mandate and what the penalties and repercussions for non-compliance are. There was that case earlier in the presentation that we touched upon that Lauren noted applied here And the argument like, well, from that case would basically be, well, you know, yes, we have to apply with we have to comply with applicable law in our contract, but at the time you entered into the contract with an agency, this law didn't exist yet. So the argument would be now we have excess costs or increased costs associated with us having to comply with this new law. so therefore, you should be able to pursue perhaps the costs associated with that compliance. Just keep in mind that if you're seeing these modifications coming from agencies related to the vaccine mandate, that you should be walking through the hoops to figure out whether you have to flow that down to your subcontractors and then modifying those subcontracts to include the clause as well. And then also be mindful that what agencies are doing is we've seen that some of them have been including relief. Or waiver language in these modifications, adding these mandates, and certainly that should be a big red flag to anyone signing a modification. If the agency presents you with a, a waiver like that or a release language, in effect, you by signing could be waiving your ability to pursue future costs of complying with this vaccine mandate. So just be mindful of that. You might want to, you know, refuse to agree to that type of waiver language, and then in that case, the agency perhaps we'll issue a unilateral modification, but you will have at least preserved your ability in theory to pursue those costs at a later time. But just the big takeaway here is that this is a very quickly changing landscape, and we expect hopefully a lot more guidance in the coming weeks and months as far as how this is all playing out and what contractors' rights and remedies are going to be if they're being forced to immediately implement these new procedures and comply with these new policies.
2: Yeah, and reiterating what Sam said quickly is that we have been seeing a lot of our contractors receiving modifications from COs attempting to implement vaccine mandate, and almost always these modifications are including waiver and release language. So contractors come to us and they they say, you know, do we sign this? What do we do? So what we've been recommending is that they immediately notice the contracting officer in writing of their reservation of rights. That are tied to the vaccine mandate, and that includes the right to recovery of costs and extensions of time. We have been directing contractors that have received the modification itself that they write that language right into the modification if they do intend to execute, or they don't execute the modification, it's bilateral and provide a written notice via email or in writing via letter uh, to the contracting officer just so they're on notice of it. Again, we highly recommend that you be hesitant of executing any changes or mods to the contract. That includes waiver and release language that are tied to these vaccine mandates as the government could likely come back and say, you know, we're not going to negotiate on any costs that you're now incurring based off of your execution of the mod and the release language that was contained therein. So high-level takeaways from the presentation as a whole, we recommend that if you're in the negotiation phase, that you're negotiating your contracts and subcontracts with price escalation concerns in mind that you negotiate COVID-19 language in the contract if it hasn't been executed yet, if it has been executed, that you approach the contracting officer to see their openness and adding such language, that you may be able to recover time and costs tied to COVID-19 delays, but be aware of your contract and any type of notice requirements that may be tied to, you know, specifically the excusable delay clauses, that you provide updates regarding COVID-19 impacts on a weekly basis, If you are incurring such impacts weekly, dependent on how impactful COVID-19 has been on your contract, that's the level of notice you should be providing to the contracting officer. Again, a really good practice is getting letters from subcontractors and suppliers to help with your request for excellent adjustment or a claim so that you can really demonstrate supply chain issues and the flow of that impact and make sure that you're carefully reviewing your contract modifications that are related to these new vaccine mandates and just COVID-19 in general. You want to make sure that you're aware of any release and waiver language that the government may attempt to put into any type of modification or amendment. And so make sure that you you understand that language before you execute anything.
0: This podcast is a Poliro Maza production, and music credits go to binsound.com. Please subscribe and hear more on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts.